another episode of Inside the Recording Studio. I am Jody Whitesides, and with me as always is Mr. Chris Hellstrom. How are you today, Chris? Good morning, Jody. I'm doing just fine and dandy. You're just How fine about and yourself? dandy. Are you ducky as well? I'm not sure if I'm ducky, but I am dandy, I guess. That's, that's how good I am. I'm fine and dandy. Well, that's how, double good. Let's square that up. Right. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Yeah? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. How's that shoulder? Still sore, but it's almost 100% back to normal. Still attached, I take it. It's still attached to my person, yes. Good. Awesome. <laughs> All right. I'm going to jump right in. Hey, Jody, do yeah. you have a style, do you think, when it comes to mixed engineering? Yes. Yeah? Yeah, we're done. Cool. All right, cool. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Is it good to have a style when it comes to that? Is it something that we should strive for, do you think? Is it something that behooves us? Is What are your thoughts on the subject? Because that's kind of what we're talking about today. Is it good to have a sound or a style as a mix engineer slash producer, or certainly mix engineer? The idea in terms of what you just asked me personally mm-hmm. I think I developed a sound due to the fact that I started out as an artist, not because I started as a mix engineer. And I don't know if that's necessarily a good or a bad thing. It's just the way my path through this industry occurred is the best way for me to put it. That being said, there are a lot of mix engineers out there who don't technically have what I would call a sound sound. Like you'd recognize, hey, that guy did that mix. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of thing. (laughs) And generally speaking, if you could recognize it for that, it might not be a good thing. It might be good to have a sound as far as like instantly identifiable, but at the same time, that has a certain uh, expiration date on it. It can. If it's too defined, right? Yes. I don't want to mention this person by name, but there was a very successful person in early 90s who ended up doing in the rock realm a lot of remixes for for people uh-huh. and was all over the place. Now, I don't know if this person is still active today. I'm assuming the person is. I'm trying to be as vague as possible. <laughs> but <laughs> you're so vague, I have no idea who you're talking about. <laughs> well, good. Then I've said it correctly. But it can be that you're, you're dating that sound, uh-huh. right? Okay, so if it's so identifiable, it's like, oh, everybody's heard that now. Do something different. This is dependent on the style of music that, that we're doing, uh-huh. right? So throwing it right back at you, do you have yeah. a sound? I, think I know I you do, have a but style, but do you have a sound? I honestly don't know how to answer that. I'd like to think that I let each song or artist come through in the mixes that I do, mm-hmm. as opposed to crowbarring what I think is cool on there. <laughs> but, but at the same time, if I'm doing a mix, I'm going to implement my tools, how I like to do things on that. Mm-hmm. So I think it's one of those cases where you kind of you straddle both fences, where I have a certain you know, aesthetic perhaps that I like to hear things, right? Whether it's drums or guitars or whatever happens to be. Sure. And it probably gets obviously filtered through my sensibilities there. And your ears. But And my ears and my eyes and all of that. Don't right? mix with your eyes, mix with your ears. <laughs> yes, of course, of course. I don't know. I'm not sure if somebody would necessarily listen to something I've done and go, oh, that sounds like Chris, you know? Sure. It would be great if that was a positive <laughs> thing where they go, oh, that sounds like Chris. You know? that, well, that would be And bad. that's kind of where I'm getting at in terms of like when you try to 
tattoo a sound onto a particular person's abilities. Yeah. I recently had somebody that I've done a little work with come back at me and ask about another recording mix person stating, I will never go back to them ever again. And of course, everything I've ever heard this particular person do doesn't come across as schooled or Mm -hmm. professional or understanding how to actually hear the way something should be presented in a mix would be the best way to say it without being a complete dick. You're talking about a mix engineer. Yes. Right. Who also runs a studio, fancies themselves as a recording engineer, that kind of thing. Yes. When it comes to all of that, I think we have to focus on our skill level first. And those skill sets will naturally be colored by the music that we are into and that we listen to. Because so many different styles, you know, whether it's rock, if it's a country thing or hip hop thing, EDM, that whatever it happens to be. What about punk? Punk seems to be a good starting place. Sure. But they all have with them a certain sound that, that should be appropriate for that, mm-hmm. that kind of musical style, right? Now, I would Prior to argue, what era? Prior to what year? Yes. I mean, things are obviously always evolving, right? And blurring, yes. And blurring and coming back in fashion. And we hear a lot more reverbs and things now because 80s is kind of in vogue again, right? I think it's important to kind of focus on something in there that, that we're passionate about. Before we go into that. Now, you mentioned punk there. Mm -hmm. Punk is, to me at least, it's one of those musical styles where you might have a certain leeway when you start with it because it's supposed to be this sort of like DIY approach, right? And it's all about attitude and it's all about giving the giant middle finger to society type of thing, right? That that was sort of like the essence of that. Punk and garage rock. That's why I brought it up is it might be a good place to start for a lot of things because you cut your teeth on things that you don't have to worry quite so much about the base value or the high end value or how lo-fi it might sound. Mm, I'm not sure I would entirely agree with that because I think Whatever musical style you start with, it's always going to be a certain DIY approach. Mm -hmm. But I think that that sort of mindset of punk and kind of keeping that aggression and that attitude in there can become a challenge. Because let's say a huge band like Green Day were considered a punk band when they started out. Yes. Right? Today, I'm not sure anybody would call them punk necessarily because their sound has evolved and stuff. And as a matter of fact, they got a lot of flack initially when their style sort of changed and got a little bit more mainstream. Pop. Yes. Ooh, the P word. Yes, the big P. Yeah. What was the point I wanted to make about that rambling? (laughs) (laughs) No, I think, you know, we have to sort of gravitate towards what we think is our passion. Not just the passion, but we actually have to be good at that passion. Here's what I would say to that. What's that? You're not wrong in saying it, but I would take it a step further and say, It's probably ideal to focus on the genre as a mix engineer that makes you go, fuck yeah, I get to work on this. Oh, yeah. Because if you're not saying fuck yeah, you're probably doing yourself a disservice and you're probably doing the client a disservice. Yes. As long as you have the, you know, you're in the position where you can say yay or nay to certain projects, right? Mm-hmm. If you're a staff engineer in a certain place, in a certain studio, you just have to do the work that's there, right? And you have to be professional enough to 
give your all and serve the song and the artist, whatever that happens to be. But if you're not super passionate about a project, let's say if somebody would come to me and go, hey, I have this lo-fi hip hop thing that I like to do. We want it to be like really authentic. I'm probably not your guy because I'm not going to be, I could give it a shot, but I'm probably not going to project everything that needs to go into that. The same thing for perhaps a, a country thing. It's like, yeah, well, it's kind of adjacent to some of the stuff that I do. But if you want something with super authenticity, I might not be your guy, you know, where let's say that whatever musical style, there are certain aesthetics that are there that that just supposed to be in that sound. Sure. Right. If you are doing any kind of music, you want to at least be sort of like, if not steeped into that sound and knowing what is required to do that, Mm -hmm. to have it sound as contemporary or as legitimate as possible, let's say. Sure. Along those lines, you're talking about essentially finding your voice depending on the type of music you're wanting to get into. I would, that would be my recommendation for anybody that that's kind of. Now, let's say you're defining a new sound, like when Nine Inch Nails came out. Right. That was kind of new territory, to say the least, especially with the way it blew up. What do you use as your marker for like, hey, this is how we're going to do it, and we're kind of springboarding off of that? It gets harder and harder on a daily basis to come out with an entirely new sound. Like, yeah. To me, that was the last big explosion of a sound. Yeah, I mean, something that that had a little bit of longevity, shall we say. I would probably go along with that. Mm -hmm. But um, there have been, you know, other things past that, of course. You could argue perhaps that, I think it was about the same time where Dr. Dre and his people that came out just about the same time and exploded as as the Nine Inch Nails thing did. Yeah. So there was that. And defining a new sound, I think, has more to do with the artist and the time when you're doing that, that all the stars have to kind of line up to do something and to have people actually be aware of that it's happening. Or if they're not aware of it directly speaking, they're all just in tune with whatever the sound is that the artist might want to focus in on. A new sound is, is does it really only become a new sound when it becomes popular? No, <laughs> because, not necessarily. Not at all. You know, if you're doing something and it just never takes off and, you know, you can pat yourself on the back and go, well, it's just because I'm so new, nobody gets me. <laughs> well, if your tree fell in the forest and no one was there to hear it, did it matter? Exactly. Or maybe what you're doing just sounds horrible to people, you know, and it's never going to take off. And, That's and that catch-22 right there. I think you have to be aware of these things, but but as a mix engineer, is that your job? Unless you're part of the sort of like the creative process. If you're getting a country track to mix, right? And you go, well, I'm, I'm going to put my stamp on this. I'm going to create something new. And the end result ends up sounding like Slayer. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a new sound, but is that something that somebody wants to hear? You know? That's a good question. And we'll yeah. tackle that question right after this word from our sponsors. All right. The question was, if you were a mix engineer and you were given a country track and you injected the concept of Slayer into it, yeah. do people want to hear it? That's a good question, right. I think. I, and yeah. here's, here's, a, here's a funny example of maybe just such a thing. A few years back, I had the pleasure of meeting a band 
that was really damn good. And they were in that thrash metal kind of vibe along mm-hmm. the lines of like Godsmack and maybe a slightly more modern version of Metallica and, and things of that nature. But they were from a small town, a rural small town, mm-hmm. farming community. And they were really good. I mean, there's no question about it. I was bobbing my head to the music. I thought they were great. I thought they had everything together except for an image and an actual like defining quality that would set them apart from the masters of their genre. Mm. In speaking to the promoter of the event where I saw this band, I mentioned to him, I said, you know, you stick a band guitar on that guitar player and you dress these guys in overalls. They can still play the exact same music, but then they can start calling it hillbilly thrash. Nice. Which nobody's done. Right. They define their own genre right then and there. Yeah. And the promoter was just like, whoa, mind blown. And here's the thing. I've been waiting to give that example away for like over a decade. <laughs> well, now you've done it. So. Well, I did it before. Yes. All and. Right. I actually got that concept from someone else. And the funny thing is, is that if you were to start running around and telling everybody that when they ask you, what do you sound like? And you say, hillbilly thrash. Most people are going to turn their heads like the RCA Victor dog and wonder what the hell that is. (laughs) And to have a group of people that could get together and define that, not only from the band and the writing of their music aspect, but the recording engineer and the mixing engineer and everybody else that we're talking about in this, that starts to define a genre and a sound. It can. Yeah, absolutely. I'm also a little bit weary of... Now, I guess anything that kind of comes out and is new and it's kind of defining a new sound is always looked at with a little bit of skepticism initially until it takes off. Anything in history, there's always been raised eyebrows about, oh, you're going to do what? You know, and it turns out (laughs) to be successful and then everybody jumps on the bandwagon, right? But I think this has a fair bit to do with the artist and sort of like the marketability of that, and perhaps a little bit less so with the recording aspect of it and the engineering aspect of it. But as a mix engineer, you have to be aware of where they want to go. You have to be Uh, aware of the genre that is going into the mix of the song or the album that you're working on. It's one of those things where we always like to say you need to communicate with the artist, right? So Very much so. And that's like, hey, we're imagine 84 Metallica, but we're going to have banjos on it, you know? So (laughs) now you're you're jumping off my bridge. Right. So I'm going, yeah, all right, well, I'm in. Let's do this thing. You're at that part where you are sort of serving the song and the artist as an engineer, and you're not necessarily crowbarring your sound onto whatever they are. Right. So I think that that's an interesting angle where we have to kind of explore and see. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, what you do with all of that, with your know-how and everything, you can perhaps make that vision come to life. You know, And I think that's, as a mix engineer, that's kind of our job. Sure. I, I mean, I've told this story before on the podcast here, but I think it, it's such a good story that it needs to be repeated. <laughs> where <laughs> Shall I set up our, a delay pedal? <laughs> well... Maybe. And just just edited in from before. I was mixing an album last year where I was essentially, you know, kind of shoehorning 
my sound onto a certain song. And it was when I got the mix feedback back where the artist said, well, can we make the drum sound a little bit more Fleetwood Mac and less Def Leppard? (laughs) (laughs) So it was one of those things where I'm I'm taking my aesthetic. This is how I like drums to sound, right? And they go, "Uh, no, that's not what I had in mind at all. Fix it. And of course we did, but lack of communication on my part there, right? That is important. Now, what is your thought on the more transparent the mix engineer is as far as style-wise, you are better suited for the song or the task at hand. Is that something that you would agree with or have a different take on or what do you think? I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's program dependent and that comes with experience to know when to step back and just do a mix without, as you say, crowbarring something onto it or with a sledgehammer pounding it into yeah. submission. And when you do need to actually throw the atomic bomb at it and blow it up to whatever it needs to be. When you asked me earlier about whether or not I think I have a sound, the and I said, yes, the bigger point of where I probably should expand upon that has more to do with the way I actually separate instruments. Because I know a lot of my mixes, not all of them, not 100%, but probably a good 90%, is a lot of very clear definition between instruments where you can hear everything that's going on. Mm. Rather than creating a wall of sound where shit gets lost. Now, have I ever created a wall of sound where shit gets lost? Yes, I have. But that was what the song required at that point. But generally speaking, I like to be able to have the ear dive into any given point of a mix and be able to hear any given instrument that's happening, whether you're currently thinking about it or not. But if you go back and listen to it on another set of headphones or a different set of speakers, you'll find something in there that was defined in any given speaker arrangement that you heard it in, but you might not have noticed it as clearly, if Mm. that makes any sense. So it's always there and it's always present. And I have a tendency to really get very good at getting that definition between all the parts. Yeah, it it sounds to me like you're you're striving for a mix where everything has a purpose, purpose, Mm -hmm. right? It's not now, obviously in a mix, something I like to say, a mix is not a democracy. Not everything gets an equal say. So it's finding that place for something that it needs to be perhaps in the background, whether it's panning or level or spatial wise, right? I would probably agree with your assessment there. I think you do that quite well where, you know, everything is there for a reason. And even if it doesn't leap out at you initially, you listen, you know, you lay back and you listen to something on the headphones and say, oh, cool, I didn't hear that glockenspiel over to the left, you know. <laughs> yes, so I love my glock. <laughs> yeah, but, but it's interesting things like that can, I think, can be really, really cool. Mm-hmm. And even if you don't, like I said, notice it initially. I still go back to that with having a sound or not. Now, you touched on experience as well. Yeah. And it becomes almost one of those things that, you know, your experience gets you the next gig, right? And it may be something that you're doing to a mix that that somebody's heard or, you know, we hear it all the time. That somebody's on the charts, like, now let, let's get that guy to mix our next record, mm-hmm. right? And 
it is perhaps more of a marketing thing that you want to be connected with that, or you think that this person is actually going to add something to your production that you want added. And, you know, we talked a little bit before we started recording here today, but somebody like Chris Lord Algae, Mm -hmm. does he have a sound or not? Because he works on a wide range of things, but I think most people would think that he has these mixes that are very sort of forward and punchy and relatively aggressive, right? So is that his sound or is it because he gets approached with, you know, projects that would be suited for him to do? That would be a question for him, not for me. <laughs> yeah. No, but do you have a thought on it? Brother. I mean, not not necessarily speaking for him, but the same could be said for like Dave Pinsado or Bob Clearmountain or, or whoever, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, I'll so tell you, I, if I were an artist and I wanted probably one of the penultimate in sounds in the history of recording, I'd probably go to Jack Joseph Puig myself. Yeah. Well, t- the two albums that he did with, jellyfish right i mean those are just ridiculous and they're considered like some of the greatest sounding records ever made by a lot of people not everybody obviously but there's a lot of people out there that hold those up as examples of amazing writing amazing recording amazing mixing yeah the whole process on those albums they're just so amazing with how they came out and he was the mix engineer on that if i didn't want to mix it myself I'd go to him. Yeah. Especially for that kind of vibe that he imparted. Right. Those are very, very good examples there. And I think those are cases where sort of like all the stars were lining up, you know, so to speak, like with, with the songwriting, with the time and everything and the talent of everybody involved. And they created these works of art. That, of course. You know, have stood the test of time. It's just unfortunate that most people don't know about them. You know, there's a talent in the know-how and the timing of everything that, for example, Tony Visconti, when he worked with David Bowie, Mm -hmm. you know, it it was, you know, an explosion in like new gear and all this kind of stuff. And and I think he had like a harmonizer at some point and they didn't really know how to explain it, but Bowie wanted that sound so that they, they started working together and had a very fruitful relationship, right? So it's that, that talent and the time and everything, and you sort of get known for a certain sound because of that. Yeah, I, I think so, the same could be said for maybe Mark Needham as well. He's been around a long time. But I would posit to say that the Imagine Dragon guys probably met him because they lived in the same town. At least I'm assuming that Mark was living in Vegas at the time that they started coming up. So, And it's quite possible that the Imagine Dragon guys just met him from doing local shows. And he was there in the audience or something and wanted to work with him or they wanted to work with him. They created a sound just for them. Yeah. And it worked out. They became pretty big. (laughs) Yeah. They did all right. They did all right and continue to do all right. You know, I think... As engineers, we we are judged on the work that we've done, and we sort of are possibly more dependent on the artists for our sound than it is something that we're creating by ourselves. It just happens because with our experience, the work that we've done, if we've done a good job, we get known for that. Sure. So I think initially as we start out as mix engineers, first I would say just work as much as you can, right? And do whatever you do, but then find out what you're passionate and you're good at. Yes. Like Dave Pensato used to say, like, 
passion about something is not good enough. Like he had said sometimes, yeah, I have a real passion for basketball, but I'm never going to be in the NBA. Nobody's know? tall enough to. <laughs> well, yeah, perhaps, but you know, you, you need to be good at it mm-hmm. as well, right? And then one thing will sort of breed the next. That doesn't mean that you need to necessarily pigeonhole yourself into one style of music and just doing that. But I think you find out what you're good at, you try to do that as much as you can, and then try to spread your wings. You know, if you're good enough at something, I I think you can start, like I said, spreading your wings a little bit and trying new things. And then you see that either you're you're good at that as well or not. You brought up Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails. Mm -hmm. He has very, very successfully managed to go into scoring. Yes. You know, he, he's, he's doing very, very well with that. But he partnered and, with somebody that was already really damn good at it. Well, Atticus Ross. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but he, he started as a right-hand man, so to speak, to Trent, right, when they started their working relationship. And then, you know, he found somebody he could trust, and then they were thrown at him this, this opportunity to do the social network. Yes. Right. And, and it kind of snowballed from there. Is style important? Maybe not as much as you think. Just do what you're good at, and everything else will take care of, its, of itself. I think well, that right. that would be my two cents. So, <laughs> what, what what do you think? Well, my two cents in that regard ends up being that you have to know the tools that yeah. you're going to use, and yeah. you have to be creative with them. You also have to understand, especially from a mix standpoint, how your listening environment may or may not influence all other listening environments that somebody's eventually going to listen to your mixes in. Mm. If you're not acutely aware of that, it can be a problem because it might sound fucking amazing in your little cubby of creation where you're doing the mix. But once it gets out into the world, it might sound like dog shit. Yeah. And if it does that, you're probably not getting a whole lot of work. To wrap this up again, besides knowing your tools and your gear and getting out of it, what you want and the listening environment, all of those things, the last thing I would say then is if you're working on a genre that you are intimately aware of and knowing the, the aesthetics of that, that will influence how you treat the low end. How loud is the snare going to be? How much emphasis is going to be on the subs? All that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. You know, How are we treating guitars? How are we doing anything? Then, of course, you can elaborate on that. One person that I wanted to mention here is primarily a metal mix engineer called Andy Sneap. Uh-huh. And he is one of those that has basically a sound now. But I think he was one of the first ones to really start implementing like the layering of samples onto drums in a metal context. So here's somebody that, that kind of took something that he was really, really passionate about and sort of expanded on it and basically rejuvenated the sound of a genre that can perhaps sound a little dated otherwise. Right. So should we have a style, Jody, or not? I think that's a personal choice. Yeah. I can take or leave my style. I think it's all dependent on what what your goal is and what you want to do. Yeah. I would be less concerned with creating a style because fads can come and go and primarily just be good at what it is that you do and presenting the song and the artist in the best way possible. And if you're not the producer, you don't really have a say in that anyway. So it's like, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> no. Do your job as the mix engineer, damn it. And then if you do that well enough, and on top of that, if you're a decent guy or girl, 
people are going to want to work with you. So Damn straight. And with that, let's move on to our Friday finds. Chris, what do you got? I rediscovered an app today. Uh-oh. Uh, it is called Syntorial. In an old episode, we talked about synthesis. And for quite a few people, synthesis can be difficult. And we basically just, we don't really understand how the synths work. We just buy patches and then we're slaves to those patches. Centorial is an application that helps you understand how subtractive synthesis works. Mm. It helps you listen to what it does. And it's basically a tutorial, just like the name implies, like Centorial, get it? Uh, so <laughs> but, clever. I know. But it has all these steps through it where one by one it adds new functionality for you to listen to it and recreate what is given to you in that app. So it's a really, really cool way to kind of boost your synth patch writing ability, as it were. It's called Centorial. There's a demo for up to a certain amount of levels, and then you can buy the whole thing. I think it's a really, really cool way to go because I think with synthesis, so many of us are just kind of like buying patches and going through them without really, really knowing how to dial in your own. So that's my find for this Friday. Rock on. What about you? I'm going to go with something that just came out in the last couple of days. It was announced by Universal Audio, and it's called the Volt Interface. Mm. And what separates this from their normal Apollo system is that you get the universal audio quality in a very small, compact interface that has no onboard processing. This is just a USB-C interface, and it comes in three flavors as far as I'm aware of at this point in time. They have the Volt 1, which is a one-in, two-out. They have the Volt 2, which is a 2-in, two 2-out. Two and then they have the Volt 276, which is the 2-in, two 2-out. Two but it has an additional piece of capability to it that the Volt 1 and 2 do not have. The Volt oh. 1 and 2 allow you to get like a tube preamp sound from the UA610 mic pre. The 276 has the additional capability of also giving you an 1176 compressor limiter on the way in when you're recording. So nice. I'm going to go with these three devices that have come out, the Volt 1, the Volt 2, and the Volt 276 as being really amazing. You can use them with your iPad or your iPhone in addition to your laptop or your desktop computer as long as it's got the USB-C connection capability. So I'm going with the Volts. Cool. Yes. And cool, while cool, cool. we've got your attention... We would like you to go to our website and sign up for our email list at insidetherecordingstudio.com. Doing so gets you free presets for some Slate Digital stuff and for some Universal Audio stuff from both Chris and I. It also makes sure that you don't miss out on any future episodes of the podcast, as well as our Tuesday tips that come out every Tuesday. And whenever we do a giveaway, you're automatically enrolled in the giveaway. You have to do nothing further in order to possibly win something. In addition to that, if you send us an email at goldstar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R, at insidetherecordingstudio.com with the word sound, you'll get something cool back in your inbox. If you have a topic of suggestion for us to explain in a future episode, contact us via the contact page, hint, hint, at the website, and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode. And with that, I'll say, see you next week. See you, Jody. Thanks for listening, people.